This past week, I came across a quote that I was reading. Uh, it's a quote that struck me as very interesting and very tragic at the same time. It was written by a man near the end of his life. He wrote an autobiography really for his children so that he could pass it on to his children to explain his life to his children. And in this autobiography, he expressed one regret, one thing that he, that he felt like, man, it shouldn't be this way, but here it is. This is the way it is about his life. And here's what he wrote. He says, Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable pleasure. Music, very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. Who do you think wrote that? Anyone know? You know? Who? Charles Darwin wrote those words about himself. Charles Darwin, you know, the guy who popularized and, and wrote about the whole theory of evolution. He comes to the end of his life and he says, everything, everything now is bland. And I read that this morning because I don't want that to happen to any of you. It's a terrible thing when people stop having eyes to see and ears to hear. And there are ways of thinking about the world that will kill you. Ways of thinking about the world that will kill your ability to see anything clearly. That will kill your ability to taste anything or appreciate anything or be amazed by anything or love anything. Charles Darwin drank too much of his own poison and it killed him. And we're drinking the same poison all the time today. One of the most destructive effects of this last 200 years has been the flattening out of everything. Everything is explainable now. You understand what I'm saying? Everything is bland. Emotions. What are emotions? Emotions are just chemical reactions. Right? That just happen in your brain. They can be explained by chemicals in certain mixtures in certain places. Wow, how wonderful. Love is just the result of, of, a, of a biological need to reproduce. That's all love is. Stars. People used to think of stars dancing in their courses in this, in this magnificent, intricate dance in the heavens. But no, after all, they're just balls of random burning gas. No big deal. Nothing to get excited about. Nothing to be amazed at. Nothing that requires any effort to imagine or see or taste with, with my soul. It's just, you know, facts. Like Darwin. Now, I say all of that because we're in a series of sermons about seeing Jesus Christ. And if we're not really, really careful, we will do exactly the same thing with Jesus that Darwin and his offspring have done with the world. We'll just see facts. 
We're talking about the transformation that comes to everyone who sees Jesus Christ, who sees the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We are transformed into the image of Christ. We become like Him in His character when we see what He's really like. Beholding is becoming. And the first step to becoming like Christ is seeing Him as He is. So if you can't see Him as He is, if your imagination is so dull, if your eyes are so dim, if all you can see about Him is is facts lined up in a, in a textbook, cold, hard, impersonal facts. If that's all you can see, then you'll never be like Him. Or maybe you'll become cold and hard and impersonal too, because that's what you think He's like. The only way we're ever going to be able to see Him as He is in the Bible is to have eyes to see. We cannot be flat. We must have imaginations that are sensitive to the truth of the Bible and are able to appreciate it and taste it. We've got to get away from this flattening out of the world that our culture has, has foisted off on us. If you can't appreciate the beauty of a golden sunset at the end of the day, if you can't appreciate the glory of these big, magnificent thunderstorms that roll across us this time of year, if you can't appreciate the sweetness of a little thing like, um, I don't know, a hot fudge sundae, you know, if that's just bland to you. If you, if you can't appreciate the majesty of a well-written and well-performed piece of music, any kind of music, then you'll not, probably, will not be able to taste and appreciate Jesus Christ either. And if you can't see the beauty of Jesus Christ, then you'll never be like Him. So we want to see Jesus Christ. We want to know what He's really like as a person so that we'll be transformed into His image because God commands us to be compassionate. God commands us to be loving, to be forgiving, to be kind and tender-hearted, to accept one another, to bear with one another. And how in the world can we become people like that? Our only hope for becoming people like that is to be melted and shaped and tenderized by Jesus Christ Himself as we see Him, because Jesus Christ is all of those things towards us. This morning we're going to look at another characteristic of the real Jesus. We, we talked about His compassion and His love last week, and this week I'm going to look at His humility. There are many places in the Gospels where Jesus shows His, his humility, but the one that really stands out above all of them is John 13. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John 13. I want to read for you verses 1-17. through 17. The words are going to be up here behind me as well. This is the, uh, the text that um, is always preached on Maundy Thursday around Easter time. And uh, Joseph, in fact, preached this text for us last Maundy Thursday. Um, but it's worth looking at again. This is when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Listen as I read John 13, 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, they said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There are things about that passage that um, if we don't think about them, we won't understand. Because this is a different world. In Jesus' day, of course, you, you all know this, there were no paved roads, no asphalt, no cement. So people were walking, and there are no cars. So people were walking around. The only way, to, way, only way of getting around was to walk, and walk on dirt roads. And of course, people wore open sandals. This is the Middle East. This is a warm climate. You don't wear socks. You don't wear boots. You wear sandals. So whenever you went to someone's house, the first thing they did for you was to provide water to wash the dust and grit and grind from your feet. You know what it's like. Uh, how many of you have ever been to the beach? And you go to the beach, you go into the water, you come out of the water, right? And you walk across the sand and your feet get, get caked with, with sand, right? And even after your feet dry, you're, you're walking around, there's this grit, this grime, this, this nasty um, coating on your feet. And you, that's why they put um, little faucets all over the beach places, because you have to wash your feet. That's normal life for these people. That's the way it would always have been for them. Whenever you walk out the door, you come back with grime on your feet. And so the, 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 the host would provide someone to wash their feet. And the person who would do that was not the man of the house or the host, of course, but, the, but one of the servants of the house. And it was really the lowliest job around. You didn't want this job. Now think about that. You remember what John the Baptist said about himself in relationship to Jesus? This is what he was thinking. He says about himself, he said, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, what was he saying? He's saying, I am so low in comparison to Jesus that I am not even worthy to take the place of the lowest servant and untie his sandals and wash his feet. That shows us really how well John understood himself in relationship to Jesus. Compared with Jesus, John knew that he was less than the least of the lowest servants. The lowest servant was the one who washed the feet. Now, here in John 13, Jesus and his 12 disciples have come together for what we know of as the Last Supper. It's the last time that Jesus is going to sit down and break bread and fellowship with his disciples before he's crucified just a few hours later. And they've walked about two miles. If you follow the, the chronology and, and read what it says about where they're going and where they start out, they've started in a little town called Bethany, which is about two miles outside the city of Jerusalem, and they've walked two miles into the city of Jerusalem, so their feet are going to be covered with dirt. 
And they need to have their feet washed because what they're doing is they're coming together to have a meal. And you don't lay down on this couch. Is what they had. This is the way they had meals. They laid down on couches. How many of you kids lay down on couches when you eat your supper? Anyone? <laughs> nah. Mr. <laughs> Bowles does. I said kids. <laughs> See, they lay down on the couch and, and relax. It's a long thing. And you don't do that with gritty feet. But of course, there's a problem here, isn't there? There's, in this upper room, there's no servant. This isn't a normal household. This isn't someone's house that has welcomed them into the house. Remember how the story goes? It's a rented room. It's like a room on the top of someone's house that they've rented, they've borrowed. It's not the normal part of this person's house. There's no servant. There's no host. It's an empty room that Jesus has reserved for this purpose. There's no one there to do this. Now, obviously, what should have happened? What should have happened is that one of the twelve disciples should have done it. Maybe the youngest one should have seen the need, said, okay, here's the food, here's the, here's the table, here's the couches, there's the water, there's the towel. You know, there's no one else here to do it. You know, I should do this. I'll, I'll, I'll wash you guys' feet. It's all right. He should have gotten up, seen the need, taken care of his fellow disciples, taken care of his master, washed the grime off of their feet so that they could enjoy this meal together. But of course, none of them is willing to do it, are they? And none of them is willing because they're all too proud. Now, how do we know that they're proud? How do we know that's what's going on? Well, Luke tells us in, in his gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, he, he tells us about the same event. And he says, he tells us what kinds of things are going on in the hearts of the twelve disciples. Even as they're sitting down to this last supper with Jesus. Listen to what it says, Luke twenty two twenty four. As they're even sitting down to dinner, it says, a dispute also arose among them, among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And can you imagine this? Here they are reclining around the table. They're, they're reclining around this table. Jesus is about to be crucified in a few hours from now. And they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. Can you imagine the silliness of that? And this wasn't a new argument for the disciples. They didn't just kind of get onto this thing here at this point. This is something that happened to them over and over again. This is something they argued about many times before. Matthew 18.1. On an earlier occasion, Matthew tells us that the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want Him to settle it for them. If He tells us who the greatest is, then it'll be done. We don't have to argue about it anymore. In Mark 9, we see the same thing. The disciples are walking along the road with Jesus but they're kind of hanging back from him a little bit. He's kind of walking on ahead, and they're kind of hanging back, just kind of having a private conversation with themselves. <clears throat> and when they get to their destination, Jesus says to them, Oh, hey, men, um, what were you discussing back there on the road? What were you men talking about when we were walking down the road? Mark tells us this. It says, But the disciples kept silent. Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Over and over again, this is what they do. They argue with each other about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This has been a continuing argument all through their time. So here they are. They're reclining at the table. The last night of Jesus' life on this earth, before his crucifixion, they're arguing about this vastly important topic of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? No wonder no one gets up and serves his brothers and washes their feet. Do you understand why? 
They're all too proud and too stuck on themselves. The moment someone stands up and washes the feet, he loses the argument. (laughs) Right? Because they're jockeying for position. They're jockeying for prestige and honor. And to get up and wash the feet, well, that would be to automatically place yourself as the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. And no one wants to do that. They wouldn't dare to do that. Now, it's really very easy for us to look at these men and... um, kind of wag our heads, you know, click our tongues at them, wave our fingers at them, and be disgusted with them, isn't it? It's easy for us to do that, isn't it? I mean, none of us have ever acted like that, have we? None of us, righteous, humble, honorable people that we are, none of us have ever been proud, have we? None of us have ever jockeyed for position in the group. None of us have ever wanted to be on top and expected everyone around us to serve us. None of us have ever refused to serve and get our hands dirty because we thought we were above it. We have all, we all have the right to look down on these disciples for their pride, don't we? Because we are so... <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? The reality is... Every single one of us knows exactly what it's like to be like this. How many of us, um, just just think about this, how many of you walked in this morning? Now, the problem with this is there are no good seats in this room. But, uh, because they're all hard. But, uh, how many of you ever walked into an auditorium, a church, a room, and, um, and kind of spied out the whole scene, right? wanted to get the best seats and you rushed there and saved them for yourself. Uh, how, many, how many of us refuse to do the little dirty, unseen things? There are all kinds of little dirty, unseen things around here. Things like putting the chairs up after the service. Things like running the soundboard. <laughs> That's no fun. <clears throat> Should I use this thing? Ah. All right. Kids, I have a question for you. Can you still hear me? Is this on at all? Okay. Um, kids, I have a question for you. All you kids listening? All right. It's, uh, it's dinner time, and you have uh, you've finished your supper, and your mom has baked this big plate of chocolate chip cookies, and it's kind of being passed around the table, right? And... Uh, and you kind of spy it out from across the table. You spy it out. You have this precise way of looking at cookies and measuring them without even touching them. You know what I'm saying? You can see which one is the biggest one and which one has the most chocolate chips in it and which one isn't burnt around the edges and, and which one seems the softest and the best, the chocolatiest, chocolatiest, bestest cookie. And you spy that out when it's like, you know, all the way on the other side of the table. The plate's coming around, the plate's coming around, and then the next person before you takes your cookie. What do you do? That's my cookie, right? And you wanted it for yourself. Why? Because you wanted the best thing for yourself. So we all know what this is like. We're all like this. We are proud people. We are are the proud disciples in this story. That's us. 
And if we were there, if we had been there, we like to think, oh yeah, but if I would have been there, I would have been, done something differently. If we were there, we would have done the exact same thing. That's us. So here in the supper room, everything is ready. The, the pitcher of water is there. The basin is there. The long linen towel is there. The dirty feet are there. But no one lifts a finger. Each, each one sits there hoping that someone else will make the first move. And of course, John tells us who did make the first move. It's not, it's not John. It's not Peter. It's not James. It's not anyone else. It's Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. Use your imagination. You, imagine the scene. Be, a, be like a, a film... A screenwriter, okay? Kind of, kind of paint a storyboard for yourself. Think about what it would look like. Here we have all the disciples. They're gathered around the table. They're bickering about who is the greatest. In their pride, they're all refusing to get up and serve. There's this kind of hum going on, this conversation about why each one is better than the other. Each one's presenting his own case about himself, about why he's better than anyone else. And there's this kind of roar going on, this kind of banter. And in the midst of it all, Jesus, you notice someone standing up and kind of walking over to the corner. Conversation's still going on. Who's the greatest? I'm greatest. Look at me. I, I was the first one that Jesus called. Da-da-da-da-da. They're telling why they're the greatest. And Jesus stands up quietly, walks over, and he takes off his outer garment, and he puts on the clothing of a slave, which is wrapping a towel around himself. He picks up the water, and he starts... Quietly, you know, he doesn't stand up with anger. He doesn't stand up, <coughs> hey, everybody, look at me. Look what I'm doing. He just does it. Pours the water in the basin. Begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. You can just hear. You can just hear the, the bickering dying down, you know, in a wave as, as each one realizes what's going on. And they're dumbfounded. They're silenced in their, in their shock. And the silence is deafening. Can you see the picture? Mouths are hanging open. This doesn't fit. What? And of course, what, do you, what you would expect happens. Peter says something. <laughs> you know, that's what Peter does. He says something. When in doubt, speak. And so he says... Um, you know, Jesus is stooping down to wash Peter's big, hairy, smelly, fisherman, fungus, toenail feet, you know. And, and, and Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now see, what's Peter doing? He's all humble now, isn't he? He's all humble now. Lord, I'm such a lowly servant. I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. Yeah, right, Peter. We all know that you're the personification of humility here. Jesus washes his feet anyway. In fact, you know who else? You know who's else's, who else's feet? There it is. Jesus washes. Do you realize? He even washes the feet of Judas. How do we know that? He washes the feet of Judas even when Jesus knows what Judas is about to do. Verse 2 tells us that all of this happened during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Verse 11 says, Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Do you think he skipped Judas when he was washing the feet? He washes Judas' feet too. So here we have Jesus, the high king of heaven, 
The creator of the ends of the earth. Kids, think of a king that you thought of a minute ago. This majestic, magnificent, powerful, sovereign Lord. The Son of God. The one who has the supremacy over all things. And he lays aside his honor. He lays aside his glory. He bends down. He wraps himself with the garment of a servant. And he washes the stinky feet of proud men. Even the stinky feet of the man who had already made up his mind to hand him over to be nailed to a cross. That's what Jesus does. That is humility. Can you see it? Can you taste it? That's what humility looks like. That's what Jesus is really like. There's a lot more that could be said about that. But I want us to think about the implications of this for us. What does all of this mean? So what? What's the implications? This is a nice little story about something that happened a long time ago. So what? Think of two things. Number one. This humility of Jesus is exactly what we need. We need to be served. We need to be served by Jesus. And this is exactly why Jesus came. Why does Jesus come? He tells us in in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man, some of you know this verse, even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. And to lay down His life a ransom for many. The whole purpose of Jesus' coming was not to be served, but to serve. That's why He came. Now, you might have to rework your thinking about this. Alright? He came to serve. Listen to the picture. If you have a Bible with me, I don't have it on the screen, but turn with me to Luke 12 for a minute. I want you to see something that's really there that you may not think um, is there unless you see it for yourself, alright? If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 12, 35. Jesus paints this picture of what's going to happen and He paints a picture of Himself with what's going to happen at the end of the world, you know? When it's all over, when Jesus comes back, when the kingdom is set up, when... When all the sin is done with, when He comes back to rule on the new heavens and new earth, He tells us what it's going to look like. And it's not what you thought. Maybe. Look at what He says. Luke 12.35 He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their Master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to Him at once when He comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table and He will come and serve them. Who's He talking about? He's talking about Himself. When the end of the world comes, Jesus is going to come. He's going to come to His servants and He's going to say to them, sit down. Have a seat. And he's going to dress himself for service, just like he did in, in, in John 13. He's going to wrap the towel around him. He's going to put on the clothes of a, of a slave. 
He says, when I come back, I'm going to wrap the towel around myself and I will have you recline at the table and I will come and serve you. Now, I want you to think about that. What does that mean? That means that we need someone to serve us. Why do we need someone to serve us? Because we're so weak. Because we're so helpless. Because we can't help ourselves. We desperately need Jesus, this strong servant, this King, who is filled with power and might and glory and, and, and splendor and majesty and authority and all of that. Because He is so strong and we are so weak, we need for Him to serve us. And He wants to. He came to serve us. I didn't come to be served, but to serve, He says. He, he is humble of heart and He stoops down to help and rescue and care for dead sinners like us. That's why He came. And that's precisely the reason that He gives us for coming to Him. Remember His own words? Matthew eleven twenty eight and through 30. Jesus says, Come to Me. I want for you to come to Me. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Come to Me, He says. Why? Come to me because I'm the one who can serve you. I'm gentle and humble in heart and I will give you rest. I will do for you what you could never do for yourself. I will give rest for your soul. Now the question for you right now is, are you humble enough to accept His help? Are you humble enough to let Him serve you? Or are you so proud and self-sufficient that you think that you can manage on your own? Do you think that you're not that bad? That you can, that you can do something? That you can earn your way with God? Are you like this, this proud man who is, who is lying in bed, dying of cancer? His body is being completely eaten up. He's unable to help himself. He is completely helpless, lying on this bed, but he's so proud, he's always batting away the nurses, batting away the doctors, batting away the family members who are trying to help him because he will not be served. Because he's, he's too good for that. Are you so proud that you can't stand being in the place where you need help from the outside? Not even the help in the service of Jesus Christ. Let alone the help in the service of your husband, your wife, your roommate, your neighbor, your pastor, your elders. I can't stand being in the place where I'm weak. I can't stand being in need of service. Is that you? One author um, put it like this. He says, what God is looking for, what is God looking for in the world? Is He looking for assistance to help Him? No. The Gospel is not a help wanted ad. It is a help available ad. God is not looking for people to work for Him, but people who let Him work mightily in and through them. That's what God is like. He says the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you in a service unless you are healthy, and Jesus won't enlist you unless you're sick. How do you think of yourself? Jesus says those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you see, we need Jesus to be humble towards us. We need Him to wash our feet. Just like He said to Peter in John 13.8, if, if I do not wash you, you have no share in Me. If you think that you're not dirty, if you think you don't need Me to wash you, then I have nothing to do with you. Then I didn't come for you. I came for people who know they have dirty feet. I came for people who know they need to be served. So humble yourself. Stop trying to put Him in your debt by working for Him. And instead, let Him work for you. Let Him do what you are too weak and too powerless to do for yourself. Let Him give you life and rest and righteousness and peace and joy and holiness. Relax and let Him serve you. That's the first implication. This is exactly what we need. Jesus gives us exactly what we need. We need to be served like this. And the second one is this. This picture of the humility of Christ is the example for our humility towards one another. It's exactly where Jesus goes with it, isn't it? He says to them, after He washes the disciples' feet, He stands up, He, he, he puts His clothes back on, He sits down at the table again, He says, do you understand what I've just done to you? Did you get it? Did you see what I just did for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I am your teacher and I am your Lord. I am your King. I am the one in authority over you. If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you what? If you do them. That's the point. This is what we need. We need Jesus to serve us. This is what we need to be. We need to serve others just like He served us. Philippians chapter 2. If we could put uh, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 8, I think, on the screen. Is that, uh, do you have the slides for that? I think we do. I want to close with this passage because this is exactly what Paul says. And he picks up imagery from John 13, I'm, I'm convinced of it, and uses it to teach us what humility looks like. Look what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, these are all things that we have in Christ. Since all of that is true, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In other words, don't have arguments among yourselves about who's the greatest. Do nothing from, uh, from rivalry or, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Right? Isn't that what he did in, in, in John 13? He took the form of a servant. He took off his... He laid aside his outer garments. He laid aside his glory, wrapped himself with a towel. That's what servants do. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What's the point of that? The point of that is you be humble just like Jesus was humble. You serve one another just like Jesus served you. You take the stance of the servant. You take the low place just like Jesus did. Don't have such a high opinion of yourself that you have to wait around for others to serve you. Instead, count others more significant than yourself, just like Jesus did. Don't be so impressed with yourself that that you ever think that you're above anything, doing anything, that you're ever above anyone. You're not. Neither am I. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. That's the point. Now, I know that none of us are ever going to be able to be humble like that in our own strength. I could stand up here all day and tell you to be humble. You could stand there all day and tell yourself to be humble. You know, beat yourself in the head with it. Humble, humble. Yeah, I've got to be humble. Guess what? It won't work. You can't do this in your own power. You are a selfish, self-centered, self-loving person, just like I am. And God has not come to you and say, you know, what's wrong with you people? You know, do your duty. Be humble. What's wrong with you? Come on, just do it. It's not what He does. What's He do? He sends His Son. And His Son comes and His Son humbles Himself and His Son serves. And He humbles Himself not just by washing feet, but by dying on a cross. Why? Why does He do this? He does this to free us from our sin. And to radically change us from selfish, self-centered, self-loving people into humble other-centered, God-and-neighbor-loving people. That is His purpose. That's the point. Don't try to do this on your own. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Do you really think... Will you, will you see Jesus bending over your dirty feet? Will you picture Him washing your feet? Will you, will you picture Jesus hanging on a cross Doing the one thing that you cannot do for yourself. Saving yourself. Will you picture Him doing that? Will you picture Him humbling Himself from glory, taking on skin, living among people like us? Will you picture Him doing that and still insist on getting the best cookie? Will you do that and still insist on having your own way? Will you, will you see Jesus Christ and still get angry in traffic? Will you see Jesus Christ and still insist, no, this is what I want to do. This is what I will do. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you need. I want what I want, when I want it. And you better serve me or else you're going to get it from me. Oh yeah, and Jesus died on the cross and humbled Himself and comes and washes my feet. Those things don't go together, do they? If you see Him for what He is, you either have to ignore it or be melted by it. Let's pray and ask God to do that for us.
to work 